and welcome to the race to the white house i am nivedita varadarajan this week the presidential election in the us is finally over however we still don't know the winner as the results are too close to call joining me today is narayan lakshman associate editor the hindu and a former us correspondent for the paper thank you for joining us today uh thank you for having me in the midweek podcast which i did which was a special for the elections we looked at three topics the first one was the impact of the corona virus on the election uh, the second one was that biden was underperforming with uh, people of color and the third one is about how the results will be delayed we are kind of correct in all three aspects because the uh, impact of corona was not that great and associated press analysis uh, shows that in 376 counties with the highest number of covid cases per capita trump is actually doing very well 93% of these counties voted for trump and these counties are in the dakotas montana nebraska wisconsin and in iowa experts before the election thought that the covid uh, would create a blue wave why didn't it happen so i think if you look at the logic of trump's campaign he has from the very start been focusing much more on getting the us economy reopened again and i suppose trying to restore jobs which had literally fallen off a cliff uh, from the early months of the covid pandemic uh, he emphasized this aspect of his campaign much more than actually tackling covid uh, and to the point where his rival mr joe biden the former vice president has regularly attacked him on the campaign for not having a coherent uh, pandemic response plan and therefore it is actually not surprising at all because in the states that you mentioned which uh, you where you correctly quoted the ap report uh, the counties and states where trump has performed exceedingly well do have a sort of overlap or correlation with the maximum sort of covid cases found because typically you would expect the people in those counties and states to be trump followers or trump supporters who also most likely subscribe to his own world view in politics which is that the covid 19 pandemic is not a serious problem or as some of the extreme people in that group would put it that it is in fact a scare tactics uh, democratic uh, conspiracy or something that is a hoax oh yeah either a ho- yeah the hoax is the word they use as well yeah. and something that is really not worth having lockdowns and social distancing and mask wearing and hand washing over there so all of those very basic epidemiological methods which the scientists and the medical professionals recommend are typically disregarded by this by this group and therefore it is quite unsurprising to see a correlation between uh support for trump in these areas and at the same time the higher relatively higher number of covid cases um but then the experts all the opinion polls uh, said that biden is going to do very well they said that 350 he will touch electoral votes but that's really not the case the election should not be disclosed in a pandemic election which is anti incumbent shouldn't it yeah so let's uh, maybe look at a couple of points that you've raised there the first that you mentioned in your earlier question also that the pandemic has not had an impact i wouldn't necessarily see it that way because the impact that the pandemic sort of directly had was to lead to a surge in mail in voting as we've all known for the last few days yeah. it has un- it has been unprecedented in terms of the proportion of in person voters versus 
uh, mail-in voters has dropped considerably. And uh, the reason for that is obviously you want to have some social distancing. People are fearful about lining up in long queues at the polling stations and being exposed potentially to infection. Uh, so in that sense, the COVID-19 ha pandemic has had an impact. Uh, you're absolutely also right, though, to say that there was no landslide. A lot of the sort of uh, election pundits and pollsters were predicting a, what they called a blue wave. And that certainly did not happen. Uh, what must be said is that on the other side, too, Trump himself, among others, did predict a, a red wave or a red sea in the middle mm. part of the U.S., the Midwestern states, the southern states. But even there, uh, it, while the traditional blues and reds held their their own, uh, the swing states present, as you correctly said, to a very, very close nail-biting finish kind of picture, which basically means that neither side has had a landslide, but it's literally going to come down to which votes were counted first. So if a state and every state has its own rules and regulations for how votes are counted. And if a state prioritized counting of in-person votes, which happened on voting day, November 3rd, then they would have typically shown a significant lead for President Trump in the first instance. Uh, and then if, they, if, if those states then as a second step went on to mail-in votes counting, it would then trans, uh, sort of translate into Biden. A, a Biden. Exactly. And that is what you've seen. And to be really honest about this, I think uh, Mr. Trump himself has sort of anticipated that this would happen, which is why he has been attacking mail-in votes, not recently, but even from several months ago, right from the yeah, summer. From, yeah, from June, I think. From June, yes, exactly. he's really taken it, yeah. Exactly. And uh, you're now seeing the second phase of that strategy, which is to at the point where at the tipping point where it looks like his to Mr. Trump's leads are being whittled down, as he put it to, in the most recent uh, press statement that he made, uh, it's being whittled down in in state after state, county after county, uh, in favor of Mr. Biden. He is now alleging uh, mail fraud, and he has already escalated it to multiple uh, lawsuits filed across different states, potentially some of them reaching the Supreme Court. So that's exactly where the court packing comes into effect, right? It'll help Trump ultimately. It, there is a chance that that could happen because, as you noted just now, the, Trump has put into the Supreme Court three nominees of his own, Brett Kavanaugh, Neil Gorsuch, and most recently, Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, and that actually tips the conservative versus uh, progressive or uh, liberal balance on the Supreme Court to 6-3 in favor of conservatives. And it's also quite interesting to note here that out of the nine justices, uh, I believe five of them have, have been nominated uh, by presidents who did not win the popular vote. And there are two of them, of course, notably George W. Bush and uh, President Donald Trump. And between them, they have nominated five of the nine Supreme Court justices, which tells you a little bit about something about how many Americans who exercise their franchise are going to come away feeling that this court does not genuinely represent their mandate because it, it, the people who put those judges in, in, into that court did not actually win the popular vote. But that raises the very interesting question about the Electoral College, which we can take up some other time. It also raises a very important question about how the justice system functions there, but that's not our topic today, so we won't get too much into that. Um, we'll come back to the swing states, Florida, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin.
Trump did very well here and he actually won Florida and Texas very easily. People said that Biden is going to win both because, of course, because of the, Latin, the Latino support and because, you know, uh, because of COVID. Which brings me to my second question. Why did the voters of Kahlo not vote for Biden? I think it's a little early to conclude that they did not because, uh, honestly, we need to look at the nationwide picture. Um, yes, of course, always there is attention focused on the swing states and we will, I'm sure, come and have more analysis, come back to this. But uh, as it stands, I think if you look at the campaign, the Biden campaign definitely made you know, ethnic and racial pluralism a part of its campaign, unlike, and it's kind of differentiated itself from the Trump campaign in that regard. Uh, President Trump campaigned much more on the economy. He did not really campaign much on COVID response and tackling the pandemic because, as we all know, America has the largest number of cases of COVID-19 worldwide and uh, his the Trump administration's response is largely considered to be uh, kind of bungled. Uh, of course, his supporters and voters see it differently mm. in that it is not an issue that requires attention. Therefore, he did perform well regardless of not campaigning on COVID-19. But let's not get into that. Like you said, the question of racial and ethnic minorities, I think uh, Florida is a very interesting case on its own. Uh, you must remember that it has a significant uh, Cuban-American population who are uh, you know, very sort of firmly, they, they tend to vote Republican. Uh, they they are you know, they're quite uh, against any yeah. government that would again re-engage with Cuba or have anything to do. And President Obama, the previous uh, Democratic president, did actually re-engage and there was a diplomatic thaw with with Cuba. So that is one part of it. The second yeah. is that in the other, in the, in the Rust Belt states, uh, which are swing states, including Ohio, uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, you do have mixed groups, but uh, mixed ethnic and racial groups. But I think uh, President, uh, sorry, uh, Mr. Biden tends to do much better in urban areas and men who, with men and women, in fact, who have college degrees or are higher educated. Um, and they often tend to be white, but he does well even with racial minorities within urban areas. Mr. If you looked at the sort of within each state, if you looked at the county level picture, you would typically see Mr. Trump uh, winning very well in the suburban areas. Uh, it would be completely red, whereas urban areas, let's say in, in even in Pennsylvania, if you look at uh, Philadelphia. Philadelphia is for Biden, while every other state, county is uh, going for Trump. Exactly, exactly. And then you go across all the way across to even to Arizona, which is a swing state, though it's not part of the Rust Belt. Uh, you see, uh, you know, Phoenix, uh, Tucson, those areas, Maricopa County, those are blue, whereas many of the others, Apache, Navajo, all of them are red or turning red. So this is a, a countrywide phenomenon, and uh, it, it is not a surprise because, in, in a sense, the parallel was already set up in the 2016 election. So should Biden have gone with a strategy which not only focuses on minorities, but also the poor working class? Because in Florida, which voted for overwhelmingly for uh, Trump, voted to get $15 per hour uh, as a minimum wage. So if he had promised something like that, Florida is in and he could have won the elections. The same thing happened in Nevada. Bernie Sanders did it very well. He won Nevada, I think. Yeah, he won Nevada and uh, he promised to raise the minimum wage. 
yeah, I mean, I think Trump, as far as I'm aware, is not a supporter of minimum wage. I'm not sure of the exact promise made in Florida. Maybe there is some information on that. He didn't. That was a state government thing, which was which was in the ballot, uh, in which the Floridans overwhelmingly voted to increase the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour. If Biden has said he will mandate a nationwide fifteen dollar per hour uh, minimum wage, maybe he could have won more states. That's possible. That's possible. But you see, the fact is that Biden is very much what you'd call a mainstream Democrat, and the Democratic Party, it must be pointed out is actually a sort of a rainbow coalition of many different liberal and progressive groups each with a slightly different view on how far they are willing to go with economically progressive agendas and socially progressive agendas and uh, so it's like many different groups under a single tent and so for example you have those who are a little further on the economic progressivism scale uh, including you know Indian American uh, Pramila Jaipal uh, and there are some others from Pro the west Kanna. coast yeah rokana aoc yeah aoc of course aoc as well and all of them are uh, would would uh, sort of support a minimum wage and indeed in uh, i think in oregon and uh, even other other west, uh, western northwestern states there are there are supporters for that and it's gone into law in fact but a couple of things to remember if mr biden had jumped onto that bandwagon he risks alienating others within his party because at the end of the day the democratic party is still very much one uh for better or worse that is tied into a lot of the elites which includes wall street i think uh, biden and even hillary clinton in the previous election raised enormous money in on wall street and in fact outraised uh, mr trump by a very very large margin there was no comparison in fact in the 2016 election mr trump used a lot of his own funds and of course the media very obligingly gave him free airtime because he was such Olympic a <laughs> amazing phenomenon to witness exactly it was like free entertainment so the similar thing happened this time where i think mr biden vastly outraised uh, mr trump on wall street and therefore there's a bit of a clash philosophical clash almost between those who would campaign or act uh, you know advocate for a greater minimum wage and those who would try and push for the bottom line on wall street so mr biden is straddling both those worlds and i think he's pretty much right in the middle or leaning a bit towards the wall street side of it uh, so i think if you remember again let's just think about other democrats uh, president barack obama actually did pass some mm. minimum wage laws i think he raised it to 7.25 yeah dollars an hour uh, and and but again you must remember that the impact of this is not necessarily as far reaching as we'd assume because this is the minimum wage only for uh jobs within the federal government so two things one is obviously the private sector is still entirely free to carry out wage setting and that, tackling that and tackling unions and and all of that would be an entirely more sort of radical battle for the democrats or indeed the republicans to fight but at the same time uh even within state governments it is very difficult to mandate this because unless a state let's say like oregon is willing to come forward and say look we want to support minimum wage uh it's it's the the us constitution actually accords an enormous amount of fiscal and sort of fiduciary powers to the state to, yeah. to do a lot of this so it, it would be hard for any president or candidate to actually say i'm going to do this across all states okay so let's come back to the results right now we know that the results are getting slowly counted one by one but that's increasing the agitation in many americans even today there were reports about how people were protesting in uh, various places 
what could happen what's the doomsday scenario <laughs> well, that's a bit of a, a provocative well, we go uh, there. We go question there. answer because i mean i don't want to frighten people i don't want to frighten people because doomsday scenarios are always as the name suggests extremely gloomy yeah but um, the doomsday scenario we're looking at right now is literally that um even as the vote tally vote tally leans towards mr biden going forward because the mail in votes are in in some of these remaining states uh, the ones which are left to count uh, and even if the tally is leaning towards mr biden that mr trump somehow successfully launches a supreme court lawsuit which wins and then uh, that you know either the counting is halted or that the counting is reversed or that the mail, the court orders that certain mail mail in ballots should be disregarded based on when they were received and so some some such uh, uh, you know development mm. and that this could lead to this would i'm very sure lead to massive street protests it would lead to a very protracted uh, appeals process by the democrats because they would not stand for it because under many of these it varies again from state to state but typically uh in most states you if a if a vote is postmarked no, to election the, day, then they can still yeah, count no, it yeah even if it's received i think one week to 12 days after yeah. the actual voting day so uh if the law states that or the state regulation states that uh, there would be a very very serious backlash and street street protests one can only hope that in such a scenario there would not be an outbreak of violence but i think at the moment from what i've seen uh, you know the level of political polarization between the two sides has intensified far more even from the time when i was reporting from there which was under the, during the obama terms and it is in a sense therefore now become like a do or die that you know people have to change the the government they have to you know bring about change in government and if the democrats feel that they're being cheated out of that opportunity they will fight tooth and nail uh, on the streets and certainly in the courts um the um, third topic which i want to talk to you about is the senate race as you know that the senate race is very close and there's possibly like two runoffs in the elections which may which brings biden who's re- leading right now his agenda in danger he wants to keep obamacare uh, he wants an obamacare plus and things like that but that will not happen right if the senate is still in control there's even a report which says that the uh, if there are progressives in the biden cabinet the senate won't approve of them uh you mean with regard to uh, which policies exactly his uh, healthcare uh, his uh, environment all of those won't be given uh, even in the budget they won't give a uh, okay to all of his agendas yeah absolutely i think uh, in the event of uh, the senate uh, you know stay uh, staying with the republicans you're going to see deadlock in washington as you have from very very many years uh, except for a few rare periods where the white house and the senate or the white house and the whole of congress have been held by one party not not often um and yeah. so you know but to me again having seen what i did when i was there i do feel that literally that is the definition of business as usual in washington because while it's very very frustrating for the common american man and woman let's say you know in far away in california or illinois or anywhere else uh, to to look at you know what trump so eloquently called the swamp uh, and yeah. uh, you know look at how partisan deadlock prevents meaningful policy reform which leads to you know the actualization of what they call the american dream uh, it, at the same time it is just the way that the american system has been set up to provide checks and balances i think it does go to a bit of an extreme because checks and balances become blockades 
but at the same time you know they that is what their constitution at least values so for example you just as a parallel let me tell you about the election yeah. system itself which is you know this very slow plodding counting method now I've, if you looked on social media you've seen lots of sort of snarky remarks from indian commentators even who said that you know they, the american uh, election officials should learn a thing or two from india because we finished so fast but the point yeah. is it is deliberately slow it is not tailored to speed however it is tailored to accuracy it is tailored to as you're looking now there's a lead of only 436 votes that uh mr trump has in georgia so every single yeah. vote literally counts and they mean that from a you know sort of a due diligence process kind of approach um and so similarly it is very deliberately set up the the executive powers checking and balancing each other is a very deliberate setup it allows for horse trading uh so for example if let's look at the scenarios you talked about so for example if as uh, mr biden has already promised to rejoin the paris climate accord within 77 days of being sworn in uh if he wants to do that he may have to however painful it is for him uh, agree to the senate uh you know removing the individual mandate within the affordable care act which was of course uh, sort of a cornerstone of the act itself when president obama enacted it got it enacted but it is about this kind of give and take and then that itself gets either supported or rejected by the american people when they vote for their own uh, con- uh, elected representative in each constituency so they, it's a very complex picture which is also i felt after all my time there that it has been deliberately set up that way so to me the thought of having a democratic president and a republican senate it actually seems quite reassuring it doesn't seem like a cause for panic or indeed that Mr Biden himself would throw up his hands and say you know what forget it i can't govern like this okay finally before we go um what are the possible lessons that the democrats can learn from this election even though they are winning i'm sure they have lots of takeaways by the fact that it's very close exactly i think you this is the you know sort of literally 400 million dollar question because uh, given how close it was what it means is that there is something like 70 million nearly 70 million americans who do not share the world view of the democrats and in that sense mr biden is actually a very disappointing candidate as indeed is ms kamala harris because they are just mainstream democrats cut of the same cloth as president obama as president clinton and any others any number of others before him so this makes you go back to the question of that the main question behind the 2016 election which is why were people seeking out a candidate like mr trump and the answer is of course as we know now a deep sense of frustration uh, certainly in the rust belt but across the us with the impact of uh you know globalization with the impact of um, the way that immigration policy was playing out with a lot of these very mega forces which were affecting everything from the jobs market to healthcare and to the very composition of their society now <clears throat> there are several ways you can look at it one way is to say look this is uh, trump was just pandering to what you call nativism and populism and you know he was literally doing uh, he he had he was dog whistling to 
white supremacists and you know people who had very little sort of ethnic tolerance or racial tolerance and that's why you see so much racial hatred and the fabric of us society being torn apart in this way but at the same time there are those people who, uh, who you describe that way but there are also those who had genuine grievances much more on economic grounds and the and the lesson for the democrats to take away this time is to do a much better job than they did even since 2016 to try and meet somewhere in the middle to try and address those concerns yes maybe they need not go all the way that mr trump did in terms of protectionism uh, you know punishing us companies who went offshore or rewarding them for coming back onshore even if the economics of it did not dictate that logic uh, but somehow finding a way to protect american jobs maybe somehow reducing the regulatory burden somehow finding a uh, via media to the republicans because otherwise four more years down the line you are going to see the same sort of earthquake political earthquake convulsing the system and you are going to see an outpouring of absolute frustration and anger and there is only so much that any democratic system even the world's oldest can withstand what are the lessons the republicans can take from this well for the republicans i think it is coming to terms with the reality of social and political change in their country they have in a sense tried to foment a backlash to multiculturalism to multiracialism and to pluralism and there is a sense of inevitability about uh about immigration uh, you know incoming in immigration into their country there is a trump can could have promised any number of walls to build and you know separation of families and all of his policies and denial of visas making it harder to get a green card all of these things but there is only so far that you can go as a Repub as a committed republican to fight the very forces of globalization which are sweeping not just across the us but all other parts of the world so every other country is dealing with all of these challenges along its borders and all of these changes in its economy and its uh, ability to offer jobs to its citizens so why should the us suddenly be at the at the forefront along with countries like the uk forefront of a movement to deny these forces you too have to come as a country halfway and meet the democrats and find that sort of perfect sweet spot between protectionism and openness between uh you know preserving america what you call american culture and allowing a blend of a more multicultural ethos you have to meet halfway and uh, that is the only way that this level of polarization will come down and the country can look forward to a, a brighter future for real that's a perfect place to end thank you so much narayan lakshman for speaking to us thank you nivedita my pleasure to join you